Kale Clark here. Thanks for listening to my podcast. Check out Charity Mobile and prayerfully consider making them your wireless carrier. Mention offer code Relevant Radio and get a free phone. Don't delay. CharityMobile.com. That's CharityMobile.com. Hi, this is Kale Clark. Welcome back to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio mobile app. We're going to take a little break from our series on St. Paul's Letter to the Romans. We're exactly halfway through, so it's a great time to take a pause, and we'll pick it up again in the new year. But here's the thing. We kind of already are in the new year, so let me be the first to wish you a happy new year. Now you say, wait, Kale, what are you talking about? You're too early. But we actually just entered the church's new year. And of course, the first season of the liturgical year is Advent. So if we're going to have a happy new year in the church, we've got to figure out two things. What does it mean and how can we apply it in our lives? So let's do exactly that. Now, I, I, I simply love living in a place where I have four defined seasons of weather, winter, spring, summer, and fall. I love it because they're kind of markers of the year. It's kind of the rhythms of life. Being a big sports fan, as you know that I am, I love watching the seasons change when it comes to football, baseball, basketball, hockey, and all the rest. And the same is true when it comes to the year of the church. There are great markers for us in order to reset our life, go by the rhythms of the church's calendar, which in many ways follows the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's talk about the first season of the church's year, and that is, of course, Advent. And as we think about the liturgical year, that obviously makes us think about the liturgy itself, our worship of God at the Mass. And what do the Advent liturgies want from us? Does the church want us simply to recall the history of salvation, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ? Is the church really wanting us to receive grace from God right now in the present moment? Or are we looking forward to the second advent of Christ, the eschaton, the life of the world to come, the four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell? We've got to be prepared for that too. Well, these are all great questions. Let's dive in and tackle those. So let's talk about, first of all, The three planes, if you will, on which the liturgical drama really takes place. So Dr. Pius Parsh talks about the three planes of the liturgy. And plane number one is the historical plane. What's happening at Mass is that the liturgy represents historical events, not not from secular history, from salvation history. And, And all of history is really his story. You've heard that. It's kind of a a cheesy preacher's term, but it really is true. It's a story of God's interaction with his people in the world, in human history, as he's bringing them on their journey from, con- from conception to Christ, uh, from birth to supernatural birth, from earth to heaven itself, the new heaven and the new earth. And what happens is that when we look at these feasts of the church year, we celebrate them, and they kind of are represented to us as if they were happening today. And when it comes to Advent, of course, there's a lot of longing 
events from the Old Testament time period looking forward to the Christ, but there are also events taken from the life of our Lord on this planet. Let's think about Christmas, for example. When we go to Mass on Christmas, whether it's the Christmas Eve liturgy, midnight Mass, or Mass during the day, we are really reenacting the first advent of Christ, the birth of our Lord. And of course, there are four preparatory weeks leading up to that, the four weeks of Advent. And this particular year, Advent is as short as it can possibly be, because guess what? The fourth Sunday of Advent, the very next day, is Christmas Day this year. So Advent is as short as possible. But the purpose of the season is to get us ready for the birth of Christ. And just like kids excited for Christmas morning, maybe for other somewhat less holy reasons, what they might be getting in their stocking, we know that the greatest gift that we could possibly receive is our Savior. And so we go to the crib in Bethlehem, and we see the newborn Son of God. And the liturgy even talks about a new birth in the flesh, being born again. We've got to do that. We've got to have the Christ life living in us. So there's the historical plane where these events of salvation history, especially the incarnation of Christ, the birth of Christ, are presented to us. There's also the present moment, and this is really the plane of grace. And for us, the word grace as Catholics, it doesn't just mean God's unmerited favor. It means the very life of God himself given to us. And so the present moment, when we go to Mass, we hear from God in a way that makes sense to our lives today, too. And God very often speaks to us. And this has happened to me many, many times when I've gone to Mass, and I'm sure it's happened to you as well. Maybe you hear a reading, or maybe you hear a prayer from the liturgy, from the, from the liturgy of the Eucharist. Something strikes you. Something kind of jumps off to you, almost leaps off the page, and speaks to your personal situation, what you're going through in the moment. That's happened to me countless times and it's not by accident. It's almost like a bit of Lectio Divina, where you're reading Scripture, and it can be taken out of its historical context and speak to your present historical moment. This is really, really important, and God very often unmistakably speaks to us through these times. But there's one more plane on which the liturgy operates in Advent and also in every other season, and that's, of course, the eschatological plane, and that's a $5 word, eschatology, that talks about the future life, the eschaton, the telos in Greek, the very end of all things, just as with a telescope, you can extend it and look far out into space. We can also look far out into future time, the new heaven, the new earth, the life after life after death, the death of the body, which is followed by hopefully life with God in heaven, and then, of course, the resurrection of the body and life in the world to come, the new, ev- the new heaven, the new earth, and our resurrected bodies. I can't wait to have the body beautiful, finally. So when we read these passages from Scripture that speak to these future events, we think about the parousia, the second advent of Christ, the second coming of Christ. We think about these last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. And when we talked about how the liturgy speaks to past history, the, the longing for Christ, and also the present moment, how God speaks to us right now, we also have to look towards the future because the past and the present are crucial in getting us 
to the future. It's part of God's providence for us. Everything that's happened to us in our life in the past has led us to this present moment, and God is with us in this present moment, but this isn't the end. He wants us to get to our final destination. And Advent is really where the interplay of all these things comes into into sharp focus. The historical plane, the plane of grace in the present moment, and the future plane of God's activity in the afterlife. So when you look at the liturgy, the text of Advent, there's so much longing for the first coming of Christ. And the appearance of Christ in the Eucharist upon the altar, this is really the pinnacle of, of, of everything in salvation history, the coming of Christ. This is, this is the apex moment, and it's being represented to us in the liturgy of the Eucharist. So it's kind of this threefold advent, if you will, the coming of Christ in history, the first advent of Christ in the flesh, his incarnate body. There is the second advent that happens really at every single Mass when he becomes present, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist. And then there is this third advent, the second, what, what was often referred to as the second advent, it's really the third advent, it's the coming of Christ at the end of time, the parousia, the final judgment, the life of the world to come. All three of these things really have to do with the liturgy. Very often the readings have to do with the first coming of Christ, the liturgy of the Eucharist, of course, the present moment, the present arrival of Christ on our altars, and then, of course, the future return of Jesus in glory. And this is just amazing. We're kind of taken out of time and God, we're kind of in that realm of the eternal now, because for God, there is no space and time. God created space. God created time. He's outside of it. And we kind of enter into that eternal moment with God in the liturgy of the Mass. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. So when you think about the liturgical readings of Advent, we need to be very, very grateful for all that God has done for us the longings of so many saints of history for the coming of Christ. And this is what we have to think about because we we don't want to make Advent some sort of a sentimental preview of Christmas, as Pius Parsh says. And we see this all the time in the secular world. If we go shopping at the mall, there really is no sense of Advent in the secular world. It's just all kind of an extended Christmas season that starts in November and ends on Boxing Day after the big sales on that particular day. I've always thought Boxing Day is kind of interesting in the church's calendar, too, because it's actually the feast of St. Stephen, the first martyr. After the joy of Christmas, the birth of Christ, we were reminded immediately of the cost of discipleship. Just as we get our credit card bills after Christmas and we have to pony up for all the gifts that we bought, we understand that there is also a cost to Christmas. There is a cost to following the Christ, and we have to pay with our very lives. And even if we're not martyred for the Lord, of course, we still are not exempt. We have to give ourselves completely to Jesus. That's what being a disciple is really all about. So the liturgy really has to do with the past, the present, and the future. Now, in the early church, there was a lot of focus on the second coming of Christ. And I think it's fair to say that the first Christians really expected the parousia, the second coming of Christ, to happen within their lifetimes, and they always lived with that expectation. But as centuries passed, we begin to realize that with the Lord, a thousand years is like a day, as St. Peter says in one of his letters, 
and a day is like a thousand years. And as centuries went by, the interest of Christians kind of shifted a little bit to the present moment. Let's not focus so much on the future. Let's think about the present. But we, we have to really hold all of these things in tension, the past, the present, and the future. As Pius Parish says, to be sure, the liturgy would not have us dream away the present and live only in the future. When it presents the final times to us, it wishes us to strip our hearts of fleeting earthly attachments and to anchor them where true joy is to be found. Hence the frequent repetition of the Lord's admonition to be ever watchful and ready for his coming. His final coming is anticipated in the mass mystery now exacted and now enacted, and it is its sure guarantee and pledge. So I really like that. He says that Holy Mass is the focal point to which all phases of the liturgy converge. To return to our example of Advent, in the Mass, the symbol of Christ's first coming takes on reality, his second coming is anticipated, and he comes to us now in grace and speaks to us today. And our soul becomes the scene of that threefold Advent. He appears on the altar, he visits us in communion, and he enlightens our darkness of soul through the glory and grace of his presence. Wow, this is amazing. So in the liturgy, it is, it, is, it is not a dream. It is not a sentiment. It is reality. Just as sure as the, incar the incarnation of Christ is reality as a historical fact. And in the liturgy, we receive this true treasure, the pearl of divine life, as Pius Parsh says. The church has a year, and that year is a year of grace. And we've really got to take advantage of that, especially this Advent. And Advent means, people wonder what the word Advent means. It comes from the Latin Adventus Domini, which means, of course, the coming of the Lord. And it's a time of preparation. It's a time of holy desire. It's a time of longing. We're expectant. And, and it's also kind of a time of hunger. We've got a hunger for the grace of God. And God is a gentleman lover. He will never uh, force his beloved, uh, his people collectively, of course, in the Old Covenant and the New are, are called his bride. The bride of Christ will never be forced to marry the divine groom, the divine bridegroom, Jesus. He will never force his hand. He will simply invite you. And so God will never force his grace upon a person who is already filled they think they don't need him. And there's so many people among us and around it who think that they don't need God. Scripture says the hungry he fills with good things, but the rich he sends away empty. So we've really got to feel our spiritual poverty, our spiritual hunger. If we think we don't need him, we're not going to look for him. We've got to understand that we are needy. We, we are hungry. <laughs> At least we should feel that way. So this is how the Advent liturgy stirs this up within us. It talks about certain holy souls, noble souls from the past who are looking for God, who are hungering for the Lord. I think about, of course, figures such as Zechariah and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist. They were looking for good things from God. They were looking for a child. And Elizabeth, of course, was barren. And that was a sign uh, in the Old Covenant times, unfortunately, as Fertility was not very well understood from a medical perspective. If a woman had not born children, she was very much looked down upon 
uh, at times by uh, her fellow believers. And it was thought that perhaps there's some sort of sin in her life. Well, why is God uh, punishing her in this way? And it, it always seems to be the woman's fault, unfortunately. Uh, the husbands were never really blamed for this, but that wasn't the case at all. God knew about Elizabeth's barrenness, and he had something planned for her. And that was, of course, to eventually become the mother of John the Baptizer, John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus. So Scripture speaks of, of their hunger. Scripture speaks of, of the hunger of John the Baptist, quite literally. He is in the wilderness. He is eating a diet of locusts and wild honey. That's it. Now, I know that these days our overlords want us to eat nothing but bugs, the food shortages, yada, yada, yada. You're going to eat crickets and you're going to love it. Well, he was happy to do it. And the reason why he did that was he was really being super kosher. He is absolutely the last old covenant prophet. And that's why he's dressing like the prophet Elijah, wearing camel's hair. Talk about a hair shirt a leather belt around his waist. He wasn't trying to be unique or distinctive or set a fashion statement. He's saying, I am the final prophet, the forerunner of the Lord. And of course, he drew many people to repentance through his preaching. They were hungering for God, people that were looking for God, who were sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors, you name it. They were coming out to be baptized by John as baptism of repentance. And of course, the religious leaders were very skeptical of this. And this is the danger, I think, for us as Catholics who are somewhat knowledgeable about our faith. We can think that we don't need him. We can think that we're already filled. Whereas the sinners that were coming to John, they knew of their hunger. They knew of their need. They knew that they needed help. But sometimes we can be so spiritually self-sufficient, we think, I don't really need Christ. I don't need to repent. I don't need to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. But we have to. We have to take a page out of John the Baptist book. We have to, just like him, we have to become the forerunner of Jesus Christ. We have to prepare the way for him, not only in our own hearts, but also in the hearts of other people. Through our deeds and through our words, we have to give a good example. We have to make people hungry for Christ. Uh, Jesus says, you are salt, the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its saltiness, what, what good is it? It's Nothing to, nothing to do but throw it out and have it be trampled underfoot. But salt makes people thirsty. Like when you go to the movies and you have that extra large popcorn, you want to get the fountain drink as well. you got to go for the jumbo. Why? Because it makes you thirsty. And our lives should make people thirsty for Christ. People should say, there's something different about you. What is it about you? Your peace, your joy, even sometimes in the midst of difficult circumstances. How is this possible? And we can lead them, of course, to Jesus, just as John the Baptist did. He said, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. He must become greater, I must become less. And so many people want to point people to themselves. We live in an Instagram world of narcissism. But true joy is found in pointing others to Jesus Christ. And that's what we've got to do this Advent. So I pray that you take advantage of these days that are left to appreciate the joy of Advent, the anticipation of Advent, and how all of the hopes of Advent are fulfilled, not only at Christmas, but every single time we attend Mass, even before Christmas, because the point of it all is a person, Jesus Christ, who comes to us in the Eucharist and speaks to you today in these liturgies. For The Faith Explained, I'm Cale Clark, but don't go away. We're going to open up right now the Faith Explained Q&A mailbag. Let's do it.
Okay, as we open up the Faith Explained Q&A mailbag, uh, once again, I want to remind you, you can send me your questions via email. It's always good to hear from you. You can send me your question. I'll try to answer it on air. The address is faith at relevantradio.com, F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com. And you can also try me on the x.com app. My handle is at Kale Clark. You can send me a message there too. So this question comes via email, and it's from our good friend Chandler. Uh, who has written in before, and he starts off his email by saying, First of all, thank you, Kale, for answering the other questions I sent you during your Romans series. And I am emailing out of Arizona, and I'm listening on the relevant radio app. Thank you for all you do. Well, thank you, Chandler, for writing in, for listening. So Chandler has a new question, and it's this. He says, Kale, I was thinking about some stuff the other day, and I stumbled upon a question. Jesus was the only perfect man who committed no sin and gave the ultimate sacrifice to die for our sins so that we could have eternal life. With that being said, since we are all sinners and no one is perfect but Jesus, we're all souls who lived before Jesus damned to hell. If we are all sinners and there was no Savior until him, how were others before him saved? That is a great question, Chandler. I really, really appreciate that question. What happened to the people who lived in the Old Covenant period before Jesus provided for the redemption, before he died on the cross? What happened to them in the afterlife? Let's talk about the afterlife for for a second. One thing that, one change that maybe was a little bit confusing in the New English translation of the Mass, which was promulgated in 2002, in the Creed, in the Apostles' Creed, when it says Jesus, when he descended into hell, it used to be he descended to the dead. I think in this particular case, although I love the new translation of the Mass, I think this is one case where this is a little bit confusing. Now, it's, it's a more accurate translation, he descended into hell, but this does not mean that Jesus descended into the hell of the damned. Because in the Old Covenant time, and you might have come across this word when reading the Old Testament, there was something known as Sheol. And Sheol, in the Old Covenant time, really meant the realm of the dead, the entire realm of the dead. It's also known as hell. Now this Sheol really contained sort of a two-tiered, a couple of different places were there, let's put it that way. There was, first of all, a place called paradise in this realm of the dead. And this paradise was also known as the bosom of Abraham. Now, we call it the bosom of Abraham. It doesn't mean Abraham was some flabby, out-of-shape guy. No, no, it means the side of Abraham. Okay, Abraham's side. Paradise, great place, amazing place to be. Kind of like a, a super vacation somewhere. But there's another place in this realm of the dead known as Sheol, translated into English as hell, and that is the bad hell. This is the hell of the damned. That's the other tier that is in the afterlife in the Old Covenant. So in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, it talks about how through his death and resurrection, Jesus has opened the gates of heaven to us so that we can have the beatific vision. We can be with God in heaven. What happened to those who died prior to this. Well, Jesus gives us a really, really good sneak peek at this in his parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And of course, you can find this in Luke chapter 16. 
This is a great one. So let's read it together here. In Luke 16, Jesus says this, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, full of sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to where? Abraham's bosom, Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, or in hell, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy upon me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner received evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And what's so powerful about this parable that Jesus tells us, of course, Jesus did rise from the dead, and still people don't believe it. So this is exactly what's going on when we talk about what happened to people prior to Jesus accomplishing the redemption on the cross and by his powerful resurrection. So in another paragraph, in paragraph 633, the Catechism says this, Scripture calls the abode of the dead to which the dead Christ went down, hell. Sheol in Hebrew or Hades in Greek because those who are there are deprived of the vision of God, such is the case for all the dead whether evil or righteous, while they await the Redeemer. Which does not mean that their lot is identical, as Jesus shows through the parable of the poor man Lazarus, who was received into Abraham's bosom. It is precisely these holy souls who awaited their Savior in Abraham's bosom, whom Christ the Lord delivered when he descended into hell. Jesus did not descend into hell to deliver the damned, nor to destroy the hell of damnation, but to free the just, who had gone before him. That's paragraph 633 of the Catechism. So again, when Jesus descended into hell, he went into that place of paradise, this realm of the dead. And again, hell was a catch-all phrase during the Old Covenant time for, for the entire realm of the dead, this place of paradise and the hell of the damned. But he only went to the place of paradise and let those saints of the Old Covenant out so that they could uh, step into the presence of God, more fully the life of the Trinity. There's a whole bunch of paragraphs in the Catechism that talk about this. And I think that you should look at paragraph 1023, 1024, 25, and 1026. It gives a fuller explanation, so you can look that up on your own. So I hope that answers your question. That's what happened to the saints of the Old Covenant time before 
Christ accomplished the redemption. If you have a question for me during our Q&A segment, you can send it in to faith at relevantradio.com. That's the email address, faith at relevantradio.com. Again, you can find me on what was formerly called Twitter. It's now the X app, at Kale Clark is my handle. And I'll catch you later today on the Kale Clark Show, live at 5 p.m. Central on Relevant Radio. Stay tuned. Father Simon says, thanks for joining me today. 